The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning, church. Let's worship our God together. Father, we're so glad that when we pray to you, we're not just praying to the ceiling, we're not just praying into emptiness. We're not just saying words because of a construct that we've created. We thank you that we can talk to you, our Father, who loves us, our living God. And we thank you for all your promises to us, that you will never leave us or forsake us. We thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you carry us. We thank you that you love us. And we thank you that we can be confident that we know whom we have believed and we're persuaded that you are able to keep that which we've entrusted to you, our faith, until that day when we can see Jesus with our own eyes in a new way. And we remember again that Lise is seeing Jesus with her own eyes in a new way, just as Irma is. And we thank you for for the joy of that. And at the same time, we pray Again, for us as a church, and especially for the families of those we've lost. We thank you for the the worshipful spirit that we see in Lise when she is here, when she has been attending here, how she pours her, her, her heart into worshiping you. And we joyfully think about what that must be like for her to be doing that right now in your presence. God, I thank you for all of your promises that you always make good on. And this morning, we want to celebrate you and worship as church family. May you be lifted high in these words that we sing just now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to hear the scripture read this morning by Sean and Tanya Humphreys, and that's on video. So let's, let's listen to God's word together. Well, hi, everyone. I'm Sean Humphreys. And I'm Tanya. It's our pleasure to do the scripture reading today. I'm reading from James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16 in the NIV. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. And I'm reading Romans 1, verses 24 to 32. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a deprived mind, so that they do what they ought not to do. They have become fulfilled 
with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they, do, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is the reading from God's Word. It is entirely true and sent to us with love. Amen. Thank you so much, Sean and Tanya, for reading the scripture for us this morning. My name is Terry Jank. I'm one of the pastors here at White Ridge Baptist Church, and uh, we're in a second part of a a two-week series uh, in the middle of a bigger series on the book of Romans. And on these two weeks, we are talking about God's design for sexuality. Last week, we took a look at uh, the design that God had, taking God at his word. And this week, we are looking at the second half, which is talking about um, uh, trading God's word for things we should not trade for. And as I mentioned last week, if you haven't heard last message last week, I would encourage you to maybe put pause on this, shut this off, and go back and listen to the message from last week first. I also want to uh, let you know that there's a a Zoom Q&A that's coming up. We were going to do it this evening. We decided to wait until Tuesday, this coming Tuesday. And that's an opportunity for us to get more deeply into some of the intricacies and applications of the scriptures that we're looking at these two weeks on our gender and sexuality. And so uh, you can uh, look on our webpage. You can also phone the church office. You might have already received an email if you're on our list. And you can uh, sign up for that. You can send a question in ahead of time that you maybe want to address Tuesday evening as well. I want to clarify a couple of things also that came out of last week's message. First of all, I wanted you to see last week not as a stepping out of the Roman series, but rather as very much part of the series, kind of like hitting pause to understand God's design for sexuality before we get looking today at the way that God's design is not followed, because without that, it's going to be difficult to understand Paul's argument. Also, someone uh, made a clarification or asked for clarification of a comment that I made last week when I used the term assigned at birth, that a gender is assigned at birth. And I used that language to distinguish between a popular notion that a person can choose which gender they want to identify with. Let me be clear here. The Bible teaches that regardless of how people might want to identify sexually, It does not change the fact that our gender was assigned to us by God, and it was assigned not at birth, but at conception. The scriptures say in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, God says, before I even formed you, I knew you. God God created our gender, and um, like all areas, sin has messed with our sense of self, our sense of identity, and that includes our sexual identity, but nothing changes the truth of the fact that God 
formed you in your mother's womb and made you male or female. That is the teaching of God's word. In fact, there's a word used today that is becoming, uh, and especially we see it in places like Bill C6, and the word uh, that I'm referring to is cisgender. Bill C6, by the way, which we might talk about more on Tuesday evening, is a bill that is coming before our government to ban conversion therapy and place it in the criminal code. And I'm very alarmed at this, as, as many people are, and uh, we might talk about that Tuesday. But the word cisgender is used in the definition of conversion therapy. Now, the prefix cis in this is referring to not on, or on the same side as and, and gender. So, so basically, cisgender means you're on the same side as the gender that you were born with. Cisgender means that uh, it's a contrast to transgender, which is the idea, trans meaning across the genders. So a person who is cisgender remains on the same side as the gender that they were born with biologically. And while we're talking about some terms, I just want to also clarify the word dysphoria is being used a lot with gender dysphoria. And uh, this word dysphoria is actually a compound word in Greek, dys meaning, uh, dys meaning difficult and phoros to bear. So dysphoria is something that is difficult to bear, a dissatisfaction with, an unease about life. If you add the word gender to dysphoria, it means that a person is dissatisfied with their biological sex, the, the, the gender that they were born with. And so we can see that there's a whole generation of people that are being taught today that their sexuality is not just a given, but it is one more decision that they need to make if they are experiencing gender dysphoria, dissatisfaction with the, their birth sex. And this is a very sad thing, especially for the many children and youth who are not mature enough to make decisions of that nature going through puberty and so on. Their hormones are all over the place. And, and also because of the fact that the science doesn't even match up with what so many people are advocating today. The vast majority of children who wrestle with gender dysphoria will, by the time they're as adults, resolve that matter completely. And I would uh, commend to you the work of Dr. Ann Gillies, who uh, has written a, bo a book called Closing the Floodgates, Setting the Record Straight on Gender and Sexuality. And she also has a webpage called Restoring the Mosaics, in which she has uh, various articles and places to talk about these very real dilemmas that many people face. Having same-sex attraction or identifying with the opposite sex is not something that needs to define you. And this is the false narrative that our world is teaching us right now, that, that if you have a same-sex attraction, you, that that's who you are. You need to follow that. Or that if you identify with the opposite sex, that that's who you are. You need to follow that. That is a false narrative. It's not true. And... Um, uh, maybe on Tuesday we will talk about that. Also, I would commend to you the work of Dr. Paul McHugh, a professor at John Hopkins University. These people have done the science, the research, and they are warning our culture that there are grave consequences down the road for those who play with gender in this way. Well, God has much to say about these things. God has a lot to say as our creator. And today, in part B of this series, we're going to be talking about Romans 1, why God 
wants all people to follow his design. And uh, once again, as I said last week, these are really highly emotionally charged themes. These are very personal subjects that we're talking about. And so it's important that we have uh, an understanding of the biblical worldview. And it's also important that if we ever seek to dialogue with somebody about these themes, that we understand their worldview and uh, how it might differ from ours. And so let's pray again before we uh, go into looking at this scripture. Heavenly Father, would you now, as we've opened your word and heard it read, would you now be so kind, O God, to take us by the hand and lead us into the scriptures and out of the scriptures with the message you have for us, individually, personally, and what it is that you want us to do or to learn or to adjust or to surrender because of this scripture. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's start by talking about how we should read Romans chapter 1. How should we read Romans chapter 1? I think there's one of two ways. We can read it like a hammer, like a gavel of an angry judge coming down to pass sentence or judgment on guilty sinners, Or we can read it like the warnings of a loving father that has put up road signs to keep his children from going off the cliff. And you will read Romans 1 one way or the other depending on your view, your image of God and what he is like. Now, how did you form or arrive at your image of God? That's a fascinating question. Unfortunately, the image that many people have of God has been arrived at, has been formed, or I might say informed, or I might even say deformed, by the people who claim to be followers of God or Christians. And yet in some cases, those same people are very poor image bearers of God and do not represent God fairly. They themselves have not been formed well, informed well, and they might be very deformed in the way that they are presenting God to the world around them who are not followers of this same Jesus Christ. And so we must all come to this place of confessing that we are false advertisers for God. At some level, at some point, we are false advertisers for God. We have presented to others an angry God, an angry judge God, or we've presented a shaming God, or we've presented a legalistic God, or we've presented a pushover jellyfish kind of God, or some other misrepresentation of what God is like. But we need to understand that according to Scripture, first and foremost, the the, the picture of God is a loving heavenly father yes a god and father who warns us but only warns us out of love it would not be loving for god to not warn us of the consequences of our decisions like what kind of parent would not warn their child of a danger that's coming if they choose a certain course of action so first of all and foremost god is not an angry judge god is a loving father God is not an angry judge. He is a loving father. But I say he is a judge. 
He is a just judge, and his wrath will be poured out on sinners bent on pursuing their own path. But that is only when he has been rejected as father. And we must know that each step of the path that takes a sinner further away from God's care, God's design, God's plan, and God's image grieves the father heart of God. He takes no joy in judgment. That is the God of the Bible. He takes no joy in judgment. That's why 2 Peter 3, 9 says God is patient. He is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God is not an angry judge God. He is a loving Heavenly Father God. Secondly, I want to say that God's people should not behave like angry judges, but loving friends. If we're God's people, we should not behave like angry judges, but loving friends. I want you to know that among all of God's children that have ever lived, and I speak of that broadly to refer to all humanity because all have been created in the image of God. And so among all of God's children, there has only in all of humanity been one single human being that was absolutely sexually whole. And his name was Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only human that has ever lived a sinless life, a sexually pure life as a single man. Every one of us are guilty of thoughts, desires, speech, experiences, attitudes, and other things that are sexually misguided. And the message of the gospel is that God sees right through into all of your imperfections. He offers us instead the righteousness of his own son, Jesus, who lived perfectly, who died on the cross for our sins, was raised for our healing and salvation. And therefore... If that is all true, what I just said, then any one of us as God's children, broken by sin and even sexually broken by sin, for us to sit in judgment, therefore, of another one of God's children who is broken by sin sexually, is not the attitude of Christ. God does not grade us on the curve. We are all broken image bearers, and our message is love doesn't matter the classification of the sin. Our message is love. Our posture is that of the Heavenly Father's posture. And that's our posture. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and God has made a way back to himself. Some of you have heard of the work of Rosaria Butterfield. She has some incredibly brilliant podcasts on a site called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Her story is that she was an atheist and a lesbian and one day was invited to go to a pastor's house for dinner with him and his wife. She immediately thought that she was just one of their pet projects, that she was going to be barraged with a sermon all through dinner. But what she discovered was something absolutely to the contrary. And her testimony is all about the fact that love and hospitality and truth led her to completely turn her life around. And uh, she is now a follower of Jesus Christ. She's married with children. Let me read to you something that she says. She says, God is calling us to so greatly love others that we do not desire for them anything that might separate them 
from God. Do you see the kind of love that we Christians ought to have for all of humanity, no matter how different they are than we are? So that means being willing to get into the messy conversations. Have you ever seen the commercial about a couple of guys talking about investing? And the one guy says to the other, hey, dude, you're not still investing with mom and dad's guy or something else like that, you know. What is that statement doing? That statement is a shaming statement. (laughs) Come on. You're not still doing that, are you? See, that's what happens so often when we come into this whole conversation about sexuality, gender, and so on. You might have even received it if you're a Christian. Hey, you don't still believe this, that sex is only for marriage, that you can't be a homosexual or lesbian, or that this or that or the other thing. And there's a shaming that goes on. And I want to say, before I go into the next point, uh, that doesn't have any place, really, in between two people who genuinely respect and love each other. And so I want to say to you thirdly that to disagree with someone does not mean to hate them. There are all kinds of foolish things that are being said today that are sounding like they're gospel truth until you actually take a deeper look at their meaning and examine them more closely. And they're really nothing more than foolishness, illogical myths, lies, Things like truth is relative, or people are basically good, or the most important thing in life is to do what pleases you. These are stupid things to say. Well, you can add to the list this one, that to disagree with someone means to hate them. What foolishness. Everybody that's watching today, I I bet you could say that you know someone that you deeply love, and you really disagree with them on something. And you'd say, no, I don't hate them at all. And so this untruth comes up in conversations around gender expression and sexuality. Let me read to you, I think, a brilliant comment by a pastor in Minneapolis named Jonathan Parnell. He says the current debate is plagued by this binary lens. You're either on one side or the other. Those on the left try to lump everyone who disagrees with them into that right side. If you don't support, you hate. Meanwhile, those on the right see compromise and and spinelessness in anyone who doesn't get red-faced and militant. If you don't hate, you support. But true followers of Christ will walk neither path. We have something to say that no one else is saying. What is it? You're wrong and you're loved. That is the unique voice of the Christian. I believe that. I believe we cannot fall into either ditch, either camp. We have something so important to say. This is truth, and this is love. And we must remember three things when we come to any conversation like this. We need to remember truth, we need to remember tone, and we need to remember trust. I have shared a lengthy introduction this morning to Romans chapter 1 because I believe I didn't want people just to hear the truth of God's word. I really want people to hear the tone of God's word. And and these three things are so vitally important. You must strive, Christian friends. You must strive to have all three, truth, tone, and trust, 
or you will not get far in any conversation with a friend or loved one. Some of you that are listening today are deeply concerned about a family member, a friend at school, or someone else. I would urge you to pray up yourself to God so that you understand how to unpack the truth of God, that you would know how to bring the tone of a loving Heavenly Father to that conversation, not an angry judge, and that you would work on a relational trust that defies anything separating it. And so as we continue in this, these are three imperatives. Well, we have all heard this saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And this applies to the pattern of sin's descent. The gravity that pulled Adam and Eve down into shame weighs upon every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve. Apart from trusting in God's redeeming grace, there is only a downward road into sin. And I want to talk about that this morning. There is a descending road of sin that is universal. It goes all the way through the Bible, all the way through human history. And I want to talk about this because I want to demonstrate to you that Paul in Romans 1 is not talking about something new. He is describing that sin's pattern is always the same with every person who leaves room for sin in their lives. And the pattern goes something like this. First of all, it starts by not trusting in what God's truth says, what God's word says. We saw it with Adam and Eve in the, in the garden. They were warned not to eat of that one tree in the center of the garden, but they did not fully trust God's word. They thought that maybe God was holding out something better on them. And so their hearts were already vulnerable to the voice of lies when it came along. The second descent on the road of sin is that you trade then what God said for lies. And we read in the Bible that Adam and Eve traded. They believed the lies of, the sat- of Satan. The doubts entered in. Satan said, did God really say that you had to? And all of a sudden, they traded God's truth for a lie. The next step on this downward spiral is the hiding from God's presence. We saw it in the Garden of Eden when they covered themselves with fig leaves, hiding from each other. And then they hid from God deeper into the garden as God came looking for them. And then finally, at the bottom of this road is being given over to the very sin that we hide in and hide God from God. And this is the judgment of God. Uh, in Adam and Eve's case, it resulted in being cast out of the garden. And those who persist in trying to cover up their shame or blame someone else for their sins instead of confessing it to God, instead of coming out into the open, into the light with God, will find themselves far from God. And so here we have a four-step decline in this descending road of sin. Not trusting in, trading for, hiding from, being given over to. That is the road, a descending road of sin. And uh, Paul is not talking about something new here. He's just putting theology to words as it applies to these first century Christians living in in the city of Rome, surrounded by sexual perversity. He is applying the word of God. Let's look at this now according to Romans chapter 1. First of all, 
Paul talks about not trusting in God's word, God's truth. He is talking in verse 18 all the way to the end of the chapter about a people that he's identified as those who are refusing to take God at his word. And so in verse 18 it says, they suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. In verse 21 it says, though they knew God, they didn't honor God as God, and they became futile in their thinking. In verse 28, it says they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they approve of those who practice them as well. So Paul is saying that here is the presence of God that has come into their lives. Creation speaks it. Chapter 2 later on, we'll talk about how our conscience bears witness. And yet, this is a people he's talking about who, in spite of God's witness upon them, refuse, refuse to listen to God's truth and resist him. And they without excuse. And so then what happens is that they trade God's truth for lies. Not only they're trusting, not only trusting, not trusting God's word, but they trade God's truth for lies. Just as in the Garden of Eden, uh, Eve and Adam listened to the lies of Satan instead of the voice of their good, good father. The same step is happening in Romans. In fact, three times there is the word used that this trading word, this exchanged word. Verse 23, they traded the glory of the immortal God for images looking like man and reptiles and so on. Verse 25, they traded the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped the creature. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, called the message of verse 25, it says, they traded the true God for a fake God, and they worshipped the God they made instead of the God who made them. And then in verse 26, it says, for their women also traded natural relations for unnatural, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. I want you to notice the order of these three trade-offs, these three exchanges. First, creator God is exchanged for or replaced with created things. Secondly, God's truth is replaced with lies. And thirdly, God's design in heterosexual ways is replaced with homosexual and lesbian ways. Unnatural. The inversion takes place. Many of you know the work of Joni Erickson Tata. And she wrote, said this one day, she said, Gradually, though no one remembers exactly how it happened, the unthinkable becomes tolerable, and then acceptable, and then legal, and then applaudable. And indeed, we're seeing that happen in our society. These are prophetic words spoken right now to where Canada is at. This is the pathway of sin's downward descent, and the result is that the judgment of God is going to be upon anyone any sinner who insists on sinning in a way contrary to God's plan. And the amazing thing about this is that at any point, at any point on this downward road of descent into sin, 
there is an off-ramp. You ever seen those roads where you see deep, deep, steep roads going down, and every once in a while there'll be this ramp that goes up a hill, and if you lose your brake, you, you can get off. That's what God has said. God has, God has made an off-ramp for anyone who wants to get off that road of descent and get out of that path. Well, the third point is that um, hiding from God's presence. Have you ever noticed your tendency to cover up or minimize or blame someone else for your mistakes, your weaknesses, or your sins? It seems rather human that uh, we do that. We started doing it in the Garden of Eden. But it's interesting that the image that Adam and Eve had of God <clears throat> was immediately twisted once they had sinned. I mean, this good father that they walked with in the cool of the evening, all of a sudden, as soon as they disobeyed, became someone to hide from instead of to run to. And that is what happens with us. What would have happened in the garden if Adam and Eve would have come out of hiding and confessed their sin? What would have happened if they would have done that? And what would happen to you if you came out of hiding and confessed your sin today. The parable of the prodigal son. Jesus told about the attitude of the father when the son comes to his sentence, senses. But the thing that the parable doesn't tell is the parable does not tell what would have happened if the son would not have come to his senses. That's not what the story is about because the son returned home and found God with open arms. That's the message Jesus wanted to convey. If we come out of hiding and return to God and run to him instead of from him, he receives us. But the point in Romans 1, my friends, is that that's not the people that Paul is talking to. Paul is talking to the people that Jesus did not address in the parable of the prodigal son because he is talking about people who choose not to come to their senses, not to return to their father, not to trust in God's word. They are refusing to come out of the shadows. They are hardened by sin's deceitfulness. They have traded God's plan for lies. And they're on a downward descent into sin, being given over to it. That's our last point. Given over to God's wrath You'll notice that every time that the message of exchange or trading is made, it is followed by another phrase which is translated as either given over or given up. God gave them up or gave them over. The Greek word is surrendered or yielded up. It refers to the act of God abandoning the sinner who has completely abandoned God. God no longer gives direction or restraint God instead allows individuals to have what they so want to have. And this being given over to sinful desires is itself the judgment of God. The message, again, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this verse, it says this, if that's what you so want, that's what you'll get. But don't hear the tone of an angry judge saying, if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. Hear the grieving voice of a loving father saying, if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. Because God grieves 
when any person takes a step down the path away from his image, away from his father heart. And this concept of being given over is not new language in the book of Romans. It is throughout the Bible. I wish I had time this morning. I don't. But I would commend to you to look into the Old Testament. An example, a good example, is Judges chapter 10. We saw it in, in, uh, in the Garden of Eden, this idea of being given over. But we also see in Judges chapter 10, in uh, the life of, of Samson in Judges 6, um, we see it in the history of Israel at various times. It was just a classic story of, of uh, God blesses his people. They take him for granted. They forget God. They forsake him. They turn to other gods of other nations. God gives them over to the gods they turn to. They cry out to God after a generation or two. God sends someone to raise up and, and attack their enemies. God brings them back. They forget God after a while. It's just this cycle and God gives them over. It's not a new concept. Read Proverbs chapter 1, 25 and all the way to 31. You'll see this concept over and over again. But the point is that, is that what we see happening on an individual scale in lives that are given over and God's wrath is being poured out on them, we are seeing happening in our society in Canada. Our society is coming under the judgment of God, present tense, is being given over to ungodliness. We are witnessing a slow and steady descent. The restraining grace of God that has been in our country for generations is now being lifted. Romans 1.18 is coming to pass. God's wrath is being revealed, present tense, against ungodliness. And yet he always leaves a witness. Like Acts 14, 16 says, in past generations, God allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without a witness. That's history of humanity 101. God allows nations and civilizations to run their course, but he does not leave them alone without a witness. And if they persist in ungodliness, he gives them over. Why is it that God gives people over? It's because they've traded his ways for their own ways. And you'll see that God gives them over in three ways. Verse 24, it says he gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This is clearly sexual sin. Uh, the lust of of the bodies, and, and in verse 26, it says God gave them up or over to dishonorable or degrading passions. And so what we see in this downward descent is that what begins with uh, heterosexual erotic desire proceeds to homosexual erotic desire. What starts with just pushing the boundaries of the sanctity of sex in marriage between a husband and wife and then having other women or other men, we see then take the next step into an outright rebellion of God's design, an inversion of God's design, so that it's women with women and men with men. You see a downward descent that Paul is describing Paul is trying to make clear the emphasis is on the unnatural way, how it's contrary to nature, homosexual or lesbian 
activity is contrary. It's an inversion of God's design. Common sense of anatomy alone is enough to convince anyone that this is not the kind of relationship God had in mind when he created male and female. Just study the physiology. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is writing, while he's in Corinth, he's writing this letter to Romans. And he is saying in chapter 6, verse 9, he lists a whole bunch of sins, sexual sins of all kinds, as well as drunkenness and and thievery and, and adultery and homosexuality. And he says this. He says, and that's what some of you were, past tense. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You see, Paul is saying in that sexually charged culture where the Greeks and the Romans were known so, so graphically to be given over to sexuality in a perverted way, Paul is saying to the church in the first century, you came out of it because Christ redeems, Christ heals, Christ rescues people. And so, I don't know, I read this past week or so, studying about the first Roman emperors, 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors engaged in homosexual activity. This is not a new problem in the 21st century. And God gave them over. And then the third giving over is a debased or depraved mind. In verse 28, to do what ought not to be done. This is the last dimension on a a scale of degeneration, a depraved mind. And the word means that the mind no longer works right. The word means that logic is no longer logic. The word is that, the idea is that the mind is broken. One commentator said this, that it is so debilitated, so corrupted, as to be quite an untrustworthy guide in any moral decision. And so following verse 28 of this giving over of the mind to depravity, what does verses 29 to 32 talk about? Well, that's one of the most vile passages in all the Bible. If you read Romans 1, 29 to 32, it talks about all kinds of godlessness and wickedness. Why? Because God has finally given over the mind of humanity to do what ought not to be done. Friends, these are strong, strong, and hard words. We must read them, though, with the tone of a loving father that is calling image-bearing people back to himself in love. I want to say, how do we land this sermon? I want to say that we need to remember the goal. We need to remember the goal is authentic intimacy. Again, I would commend to you the the work of Dr. Julie Slattery. Uh, Look up her her webpage. Dr. Julie talks about authentic intimacy and addresses sexuality in so many ways. And uh, I want to go back to the very first question that God asked humanity, which is, where are you? And this this morning as we think about this, I want you to remind you that God is not a shaming God. And I am not in any way in this message attempting to shame anybody. That is not my desire. What God is doing is he's, he's calling us back 
to authentic intimacy, to a real relationship with him. He's calling us out of the shadows and into the light. The very first question that God said was, where are you? You know, one, one morning this past week, <clears throat> I came into the, this room where I'm in right now, this auditorium. It was dark, and I began to just walk and pray around the, the perimeter of this place. And uh, I was just, just saying, God, help me with this message. And I feel as though <clears throat> God was saying to me just that same first question, where are you? And I responded out loud. I said, God, I'm, I'm here in the, in the dark walking. I'm walking in the dark, God. And, and this metaphor came to me and God seemed to be saying, come out of the dark and come into the light. You ever notice that when you're walking in the dark, your eyes adjust and you can start to make darkness look pretty normal. But God has said, no, don't walk in the dark Come out of the darkness, the shame, and come into the light. My prayer this morning has been that <clears throat> there's someone that's hearing God's plan and saying, I want that more than anything else now. And my prayer for you, friends, is that you would come into the light, that you would reach out, reach out to someone you can trust that knows the truth of God's design and will share it with you in the tone and in the heart of God. May God lead you, and may God lead us all for his glory. Amen. My friends, every single one of us has done our share of saying to God, I'm not going to do it your way, I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to wait for you, I'm going to make life work the way that I want. I'm not going to fulfill this longing by waiting for you to fulfill this longing. I'm going to do it a different way. I'm not going to trust you. I'm going to trust me. We've all done that. In our heart of hearts, I think we can all be aware that we've done those things. And The beautiful thing is that because of Jesus Christ, because he died on the cross and paid for all of our sin so that we do not have to pay for our sin, because of that... We can approach God with faith. We can approach God knowing that he is not going to shame us for our sin. We can approach God knowing that he's not scandalized by us. He sees the righteousness of Christ in us. And so today, just as Pastor Terry has said, when God says, where are you? I invite you just to say, here I am, God, all of me whatever it is, all the struggles that I have, the things that I still struggle with right this second, and just as we've heard the, in the song, just come as you are. Come to the table as you are. Please take the bread and the cup that you have. And let us first remember that this bread symbolizes the body of Christ. Christ died on the cross. His body was broken so that we can have fellowship with, with God. So together, let us take this bread and remember what Christ has done. And similarly, Jesus has said, this is my blood 
spilled for you, that you might have fellowship with me. Let us take this together and remember the body of Christ. Lord, I thank you that we can come before you. We do not have to hide. We do not have to hide in, in the forest in the, in, in, from you in the garden as Adam and Eve did. We do not have to cover our shame. We can come before you and you love us and we know that you forgive us. And I just pray, Lord, that you would give us peace in knowing that you have forgiven us. And we thank you today for your son, Jesus. Thank you for meeting us here and for all the ways that you have taught us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord God, thank you for the amazing truth of your grace. I thank you how you have revealed to us through your word that Jesus Christ is our Savior. And I thank you that you've given us the ability to know that and to accept his forgiveness from the cross. And for all of those who are just starting to understand that, or who are just starting to understand that there is grace that is far beyond any sin that we could ever do. There is grace that's far beyond our imperfection or anything that could separate us from you. I pray, Lord, that you would continue just to grow that knowledge in us, that joy in us, and I pray that we would walk in peace. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day, everybody.